Okay, you can turn over in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, we're continuing in our study of 1 Thessalonians. We find ourselves in chapter 4 today. We'll be looking at verses 9 to 12. And um, Paul, in this incidence, if you're not familiar with Thessalonians, he's really pleased with the church and how it's doing. He planted it, and him and Timothy and Silas, and he got word back from Timothy because they had to leave unexpectedly because of the persecution that they were enduring. And so they left this small band of believers there in this newfound church uh, with only maybe a, a month or two of discipleship. And yet, when they heard back from Timothy, Paul was so pleased and so overjoyed to hear that they're doing well. A lot of the believers in Thessalonica were from a pagan background, and um, some of them were from Jewish background, but most of them were from a pagan background, you would say, and so they had a lot of baggage. And uh, whenever someone gets saved from a very sordid past, that baggage is always there, but it's wonderful to know that Christ is sufficient, amen, to deal with whatever baggage we may bring to the table. And uh, sometimes we forget that, but that's what the Lord wants us to understand. And so now Paul, he we've been going through this book now, and he's really uh, praised them the first three chapters. He couldn't believe how well they were doing. Um, And at the beginning here of chapter 4, he begins to exhort them. Don't let up. Don't don't slow down. Uh, He wants them to understand that you can't let down your guard, especially in that kind of a situation, in a very pagan culture. And they were um, being inundated with Uh, temptation and persecution all around them, much like we are today as we live here in the Bay Area. And so it affects uh, dramatically their faith. And Paul wants them to know that he wants them to to continue. And um, he continues here basically in chapter 4 all the way through the end of chapter 5 to really tell them how to live in the present for the future. He says, you know what, we know Christ is coming back. He got all that. He taught them on that. But he begins to dial down on their daily life. Because if you're like me, sometimes in our spiritual life, we can tend to slack off a little bit. We think, well, we got this. You know, it'll be all right. Uh, God's holding me secure, and I can kind of let up on the Bible memory and the, the, the Bible reading a little bit, give myself a little break. And Paul says, no, not so. Um, he wants them to continue. And so he really encourages their hearts, but he also exhorts them very much. And first of all, last week we looked at, after the opening verses, we looked at at verses 3 through 8, and he talked about God's call to sexual purity, to purity in their own personal lives. Now remember, they were from a very pagan background. There was infidelity all around them. There was, um, the culture was just saturated with uh, things that were not honoring to the Lord, and it's, it's very important to realize that we live in such a culture today. You can't even drive down the freeway without seeing something that could be offensive. You know? So you have to put a guard over your eyes, over your ears, your lips, everything. And so he wanted them to understand that God called them to purity in their personal lives. And we covered that last week. Well, he moves on from that topic, and he begins in verse 9. And if you would be so kind as to stand in honor of God's word as we read our text this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, and we'll read down to verse 12. Paul writes, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brethren throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, and here comes the exhortation, brothers, do this more and more. As, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Father, we thank you for this text and we pray this morning that you would make it practical to us, that you would apply it to our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want to remind you the context here that Paul is writing this letter. Like I said, he spent all this time just rejoicing over where they were at, but now he begins to exhort them. And he begins in chapter 4, and he calls the call to purity. Now he moves on, and that's what it says there. Now concerning brotherly love, it's interesting that he moves from a 
uh, a love that is impure, a lustful, sin-filled love, something that is, is not honoring to the Lord. He calls us in chapter, or chapter 4, verse 3, he says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's not an option. It's not a choice. It's a command. And so we have nothing other to do than obey God's command if we're called to be his followers. But he says now that you understand you're called to purity, I want you to also understand as brothers and sisters in the Lord, in Christ, as a church, you are called to love one another. And that's why he says now concerning brotherly love, you have no one to need to write to you. And this really comes down to where the rubber meets the road in our faith. We have a a Christian faith. We have something that's living. It's not a dead faith. There's a lot of religions of the world that have faith. But theirs is a dead faith. Their faith is in something that can't save them. Their faith is in something that can't transform them. But they still have to live by a code. They have to live by the rules of their religion. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be? Without the Holy Spirit, without God's truth, without God changing your heart and your mind so that you're open now, your eyes are open to God's truth and his word. See, we have a a faith that affects our daily life. It's a working faith. It's a walking faith. It's a living faith. And we should be thankful for that. Thank God we're not just called to, to worship something that has no power to change us. It just says, oh, you've got to change yourself. I mean, I know a lot of people are trying to change themselves daily. <laughs> it usually doesn't work out too good. I know because I've tried. It doesn't work out. Only in the Christian faith do we have the power of God. The Bible says there's no name under heaven, no other name under heaven by where you must be saved. And that's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he makes it very clear. And we, we believe our faith comes from heaven, but it comes down and it actually touches the earth in the way we live out our lives daily. And so what he was saying is that, you know what? He gets kind of excited about the day of the Lord and he starts talking about the coming of the Lord and, and he's already talked to them about that and he taught them about that because they were under persecution. He was probably trying to encourage them. Hey, the Lord's coming back. Get ready. You know, get excited about it. And they were kind of immature believers. And so as a result of that, they were, they're overly excited about the Lord's return. And they got to the point where that's all they fixed their heart on. Jesus is coming back. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I, my, my brother sent me a a t-shirt, and it says, uh, normal is not coming back. Jesus is coming back. <laughs> you know, we all say, oh, when's it going to go back to normal? It's not coming back, folks. We live in a whole different world today, you know. Uh, and so a lot of people have that mentality. Well, you know, nothing's going to change. I just can't wait the Lord to come back and punch out of here, and, and I'm just going to hang around here on earth and relax in my easy boy uh, grace chair and uh, just settle down and and wait for his return. And there's nothing wrong with expecting the Lord's return. We're instructed to do so much. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul points to the Thessalonians and he says, I constantly remember your work of faith, your labor of love, steadfastness of hope. I know you're the elect and from you sounded forth out the word of God. So he understood where they were coming from. And he commands them continually to to say because of their state and their status in Christ, he said, don't forget, the Lord is coming back for you. You should be longing for the the coming, the return of the Lord. And you kind of say, well, okay, why is he exhorting them in this way? Because it almost sounds like he's rebuking them. He's not rebuking them. They were doing most of the things right that they were doing. But he knew the dangers of complacency in their faith. And so he said, you can't grow complacent. And so the, the compelling reason here that he wanted to, to, to bring this up, if you, if you look down the next subject in the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at the rapture. And that's what he starts in verse 13. Look down there. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant brothers, about those who are asleep, or dead is the word, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And then he says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, 
Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. We should look forward to that. We're commanded to look forward to that over and over and over again. And, and the problem with the Thessalonians was they began to slack off in their daily life, in their daily spiritual disciplines, because they thought, boy, the Lord's just going to come back. He can come back any time. And they were, they were together on a lot of things. They did a lot of things right. But this one area, Paul saw that, hey, you know what? They're growing a little complacent here. They're growing a little lazy spiritually. Uh, they were enthusiastically waiting for the Lord's return, as we should be. But you know what? Um, you know, as some people say, they were so heavenly minded, they weren't any earthly good. Have you ever heard that phrase, right? Uh, we don't have a lot of that today. But he wants them to understand and look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus and our being together, uh, being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, with regard to the coming of Christ and the rapture, he says, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. In other words, don't be disturbed about this. Don't be so focused on the coming of the Lord that it, it shuts you down. He says, either by a spirit or by a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. They were so focused on the day of the Lord, they began to worry, maybe we missed it. <laughs> maybe, maybe we're not gone. Maybe we missed it somehow. And they started to get frantic there in the, the church in Thessalonica. And that's why he has to say in verse 3, let no one deceive you of chapter 2. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, sorry. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I think I said first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, and the son of destruction. And then he goes on to a big discussion about the coming of the Lord. So it's, they were so fixated on it, he couldn't just cover it here in the first chapter just as a passing thing. Because he must have heard, wow, these guys are taking this to the furthest extent. And so he had to even write a second letter to him. And it, most of the, the second letter dominates that. They had a lot of anticipation. We should anticipate the Lord's coming back. But that excitement and that enthusiasm for the zeal of the coming of the Lord began to uh, allow the mundane responsibilities, you could say, of life, of spiritual life, to lose their importance. And we see that even in our culture today. I mean, they kind of look, people look at, well, Jesus is coming back. Why mess with anything? Why do anything? Um, let's just get on our pajamas and go up on the roof and wait. You know, uh, that's not the way that we should live our Christian life. Martin Luther said this. He said, if I knew that the Lord was returning tomorrow, today I'd plant a tree. <laughs> In other words, you know what? You don't have time to just sit on your laurels and do nothing. And throughout church history, there's been a myriad of individuals and groups that have caught, been caught up so much in the prophecy and the Lord's return and all that stuff. They've acted very, very strangely. You recall here in the Bay Area, we had a, a pastor who was very famous from the radio, Harold Camping. And he wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why the Lord's Going to Come Back in 1988. Well, guess what? He didn't come back. So then he wrote another book, 89 Reasons Why the Lord's Come. And he did this several times, and we know the history, and it, it, it makes the Word of God out to be a mockery. Or some of you might remember in 1999, even here in our church, we had some people very concerned. They called it what? Y2K. Y2K is coming. You know, stockpile the food, stockpile. And it was kind of like, well, okay, you, it's, it's nothing wrong with planning and being wise about it. But for some folks, to be honest, I mean, they thought it was the end of the world. They thought it literally was the end of the world. Here we are 22 years later. <laughs> okay, Y2K was nothing, absolutely nothing. 
And see, the Thessalonians here had gotten a bit carried away and decided that in light of the Lord's soon return, they would quit their jobs and basically spend their time proclaiming the end of the world. And there's people that do that today. Um, In the meantime, when the Lord doesn't come back and they sold all their property, and there's people that have actually done this, and groups of people that have actually followed people that told them to do this. They sell all their property. They go buy Bibles and praying hands and all kinds of things, tracts, and that's what they do. They, the Lord's coming back soon, so we just got to spend all of our... And then the Lord doesn't return on the day that they prophesied that he would return. And guess what? Where do they go? They go back to the church. Oh, we need some help. <laughs> you know, We don't have our jobs anymore. We don't have any money in the bank. Can you help us out? And this is what was happening in the church in Thessalonica. Some of these guys weren't working. They thought, why work? The Lord's going to come back. But they still needed their stomach fed. They still needed food in their stomach. They still needed their families cared for. So they turned to the church, and it started becoming a burden on the church. And so Paul has to address this. And so they were sponging, you could say, off the church. And by the time he wrote Second Thessalonians, the problem had grown so much that he even deals more extensively in chapter 3, verses 6 through 15, about the whole issue of working and, 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 and that whole thing. So there's nothing wrong with anticipating the Lord's return. We're commanded to do so, right? John said himself, even so come, Lord Jesus. It's something we should look forward to. I can't wait to punch out of here, whether by death or by the Lord's coming, whatever. I mean, you're done with this body. You don't have to deal with sin anymore. You're in the Lord's presence. I mean, what a wonderful place to be in. First Corinthians, Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift, he's writing to the Corinthians, as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we waiting? Or James has a good word for us in chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. That's one thing I don't have, is patience. I have a very hard, I struggle with patience, being patient with people and projects and things. I've always struggled in that area. But James says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. And then in verse 8, he says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And even Peter chimes in later and says, you know, you know it's coming soon uh, and you need to live godly, pure lives. Um, and so we need to be, be sure that we are anticipating the coming of the Lord, but we should also not just pull up and just give in and do nothing. And that's where they were headed, unfortunately. And so much so that they became kind of agitated. That's why I read there in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. They kind of got worked up over this. And they were beginning to worry about it. There are Christians today who are worrying about the state of the country and the state of the future and all that stuff. You know what? God's got it under control. We're on the right side of history. In the end... It won't matter what the stock market's doing. It won't matter how much your house sells for. It won't matter that you can't buy a used car. It doesn't matter. All those things are of this world, and we have to constantly, constantly remind ourselves. But at the same time, we're called to what? Be good stewards of what we have. We don't just want to go sell everything and say, well, whatever, the Lord's coming back. And that was the situation here. And so Paul gives them practical instructions on how they're to live out this this love that he calls them to, this brotherly love. And uh, he says we should work at loving one another more and be showing God's love by our behavior at work. In other words, God's love isn't just for Sunday mornings. It should be during the week when you're in the office. And you have to not only work at loving each other in the the body of Christ, but you also have to, to work and show about showing God's love out in the workplace. So first of all, the first point here, we should work at loving one another more. Remember, Paul is not one to just say, oh yeah, you get a pass, take it easy, don't worry about it. That's why he points out there, do this more and more. At the end of verse, chapter, or verse 10 there of Thessalonians chapter 4. 
And he says this is a labor of love. This is something you have to work at. It doesn't come naturally. You know, sometimes I just crack up because people say, oh, you know, brother, brother, he's just such a loving person. No, he's not. He's not naturally loving. He's a sinner just like you and I are. You know, he deals with, with pride and issues and all kinds of things in his heart just like we do. Maybe on the surface it looks like there's something different there, but the Bible says that the heart is wicked. It's not something that we should be celebrating, but it doesn't mean that you can't show love, but the kind of love that God receives can only come from God. And so he didn't want them to just rest on their laurels here. He said, you know what, you need to be working on this. Three things about this. First of all, love for one another should be a mark of the church. When people look at people in the church, this should be um, in contrast to what they see in the world in verses 3 to 8, you know, that lustful kind of stuff. In contrast, there should be a selfless love in the church. And unfortunately, our culture sometimes confuses those two. You know, people think that somehow they're going to find love out there in the world. No, you're not. You're just going to get trampled. Um, You can only find love, true love, through Christ. And so Christians are not to be characterized by the passion of lust, he says in verses 3 to 8, but rather this fervent, pure love of the brethren between us. And the, the word he uses there is brotherly love, Philadelphia. That's the Greek word. That's what Philadelphia stands for, city of brotherly love. Well, there's not a whole lot of brotherly love going on in Philadelphia. You just came back from Philadelphia. You know what it's like back there. I mean, they got some issues, crime all over the place. They need to go back and do a little word study on why they called it Philadelphia. But it originally referred to that word to affection between blood relatives. That's really what it meant. It meant the love you share with your family. You know, that's, that's a love like you don't have for anyone else. The love of your brothers and sisters and your mother and your dad and your children. I mean, that's a, a certain love that's there. But in the New Testament, it's used as a love between the members of the family of God. Between the members of the church. Between those who have put their faith or trust in Christ and in Christ alone. There's a special connection we have. And it doesn't matter whether it's the church you go to or you've gone to for 50 years or maybe you're away on vacation and you go to a church. Guess what? That same love is there among the brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why it's, it's important to realize that and to understand that. True biblical love always expresses itself in the New Testament. How? Through acts of service. Through acts of service. It's never enough just to say, oh, yeah, I got love, but you don't show it. It always expresses itself in acts of service. It always is meeting needs, doing things sacrificially, somehow to benefit others. And you can read through a myriad of verses that prove that out. We don't have time this morning to do that. But Paul wasn't correcting the Thessalonians. He wasn't rebuking them for the lack of love, but rather he was trying to encourage them to keep it going. And that's really the focus of our message this morning. I'm not here this morning saying none of you are loving. You're more than loving. We see it all the time as leaders where the body of Christ is ministering to one another. That's a wonderful attribute to have for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's not correcting them, and we're not here to correct this morning. We're here to exhort you, keep it going. Don't grow Don't grow lazy. Thinking, well, you know, I do this on Sundays and that's enough love. I I don't have to show anybody else love. No. Maybe give somebody a call, write them a note, whatever. Reach out and see if somebody needs something. Leon Morris, in his commentary on this book, wrote this. Something which should give modern Christians much food for thought is the way in which the early church was characterized by love. I mean, when the people saw the early church, that's the only thing they could think of. What kind of love is this? Because they weren't used to that. They would say, behold, how these Christians love one another. You don't hear that much today. (laughs) You don't hear somebody saying, wow, that's just such a loving church. Oh, the people that go to that church, man, they're just so wonderful. You don't hear that. You don't hear that today. John 13, 35 
Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love, what? One for another. If you have love, one for another. He also said that that's the second commandment after a love for God, is that you would love each other as you love yourself, right? In Romans 13.10, Paul says, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Some people are so caught up with trying to keep the law, they forget all about love. And what does that become? That becomes legalism. <laughs> and legalism isn't anything but love. It's just a hard and fast adherence to some rules that somebody made up that most of the time are not even biblical, by the way. Or First John. Remember the song First John 4, 7 and 8? We used to sing that song. <laughs> Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know God does not love because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. He's given us a picture of it in verse 9 there. That God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God but that he loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation or satisfaction for our sins. Verse 11, behold, uh, beloved, if, love, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And even in, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 and verse 14, the apostle writes this, the apostle of love, he says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. There's no gray area there. You're either with the devil or you're with the Lord. He says, whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Verse 14 says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. You want to know if you're saved or not? It tells you how. Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And so stop and ask yourself, do you love the church? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? And more importantly, do you show it? If that's true, then you can be assured that you are in Christ. Genuine love for one another should be the mark of a true church. Secondly, God is the one who teaches us about loving one another. We can't have a class on this and say, okay, here, just do these things and then you'll be loving. No, it takes a transformation of the heart, does it not? God has to change our heart. And this is what he says in verse 9. He says, he says uh, you have no need for anyone to write to you. He's talking to the Thessalonians there. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. He uses this emphatic expression, you yourselves. And it indicates that apart from him or any other teacher, this would not happen. In other words, it's impossible to teach someone how to love. It has to be come from the God of love, God himself. And that word there literally means taught by God. In the original language, it means God taught. And only God taught. And it's used only here in the New Testament to love one another. And so it's kind of an interesting expression that was characterizing the, the divine nature that we now possess as Christians. And remember, last week we saw at the end of our text there, he talked about the Holy Spirit who gives, verse 8, his Holy Spirit to you. So God doesn't expect us to live this Christian life on our own. He's given us several things to help us. He's given us, first of all, the Holy Spirit that resides within us as believers. The moment we put our faith, our trust in Christ, the Bible says that he deposits in us the Holy Spirit of God. The same Holy Spirit, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, resides within us. And now we're called the temple of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why a sin against your own body is a grave sin. But he also gives us his word. He also gives us the body of Christ. And in Romans 5, 5, he says, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You know, sometimes I hear Christians say, Well, I'm just praying for more love. I always say that that's a stupid prayer. I just say it. It's a stupid prayer. Why? He's not going to give you any more love. 
If you're a born-again Christian, you got all the love. You got the love of Christ shed abroad in your heart. There's no more love than that, folks. You have to utilize what you have. We used to sing a song called More Love, More Power. I stopped singing it for this reason. When you have the love of Christ shed abroad in our hearts, there's no more love than that. He's the one that gave down his life, laid down his life for us. So when he says the Thessalonians were taught by God to love one another, he's probably here referring to the work of the Holy Spirit. He says in 1 John, well, we read that in 1 John 4, 7, and 8, but John three sixteen, another verse, for God so loved the world that what did he do? He gave his only begotten son. And that's why I said whenever the love of God and, and pure love is throughout the New Testament, it's always filled with acts of service. It's not just words. I mean, it'd be one thing that said, oh, God loved the world, but he didn't give us nothing. He let us die in our sins. We would say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like love, right? No, but he gave his own son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Or Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so you could, if you said, well, what, what do you mean by this call to love? What kind of love are you talking about? I'm talking about a love that is self-sacrificing, that it's a caring commitment that shows itself by seeking the highest good of the one loved. In other words, you're not interested in yourself anymore. You're interested in the one that you're loving. So when we practice biblical love in the body of Christ, we shouldn't be calculating, well, I want to show this person love, but I, I don't know, it's going to take some time. I don't, know if I, I don't know if they're worth it. I wonder if they're going to give me something back. You know, that shouldn't even be on our hearts. It's a love that's self-sacrificing. God so loved, it says, that he gave. He gave. Christ loved us, and what did he do? He gave himself for us. This is a model. This is a picture of biblical love. God's love involves, I think I put it down there for you, first of all, self-sacrifice. God's love involves self-sacrifice. Um, and that's such an important point because what's the main hindrance to love in this fashion? Selfishness. That's what it is. It's selfishness. That's why husbands were exhorted in Ephesians 5 to love our wives even as what? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for us. I mean, it's, it's real easy to say, well, yeah, I'd lay down my life if my wife was being threatened physically or something. I'd, I'd die for her. Well, that's, that's easy to say that. But when you're home watching the football game and your wife's slaving in the kitchen. It's like, ah, well, whatever. Well, wait a minute. No. Why don't we lay down our life? Why don't we turn off the tube and go, hey, you need some help? That's what, that's what should be in our hearts. Um, sacrificing those times. And, and, and what does that do? It, it, it inconveniences us. But that's what service does. Whenever we serve, it's always inconvenient. I think if it's not inconvenient, it's not really service. That's where biblical love shows itself. It's not just talk. It's an observable action. Um, I remember when we first got married. You know, I'm not real good with words sometimes and whatever. And after a couple of months, my wife would often turn to me and say, Well, do you love me? Of course I, I love you. Why wouldn't I love you? I married you, you know. And, you know, my thinking was like, well, I'm just showing you how I love you. I don't have to say I love you every day. You know, those words come cheap. But I learned that women need to hear that. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I had to alter my thinking as well. And so it's, it's self-sacrificial. It shows itself. It's also caring. It's, this is kind of the emotional element of love. When we think of love, we think of a big emotion. But really, in the Bible, there's no emotion to it. There's some. But it's, it's more serving than anything else. It's not just a cold 
service that you're performing for somebody. There is some emotions involved. And the actions of love are done out of a heart that genuinely cares about a person's well-being. You know, if you genuinely care for someone and you're serving them and you're caring for them, that's, that's the kind of love that God accepts. But love is also a caring commitment. Think about it. When you get married, it's a lifetime commitment. It's a lifetime covenant that you're signing up for. That's why you shouldn't do it ill-advised. You may have a wonderful feeling in your heart for others, but even when those feelings aren't there, you still need to act in love. Why? Because you've committed to that relationship. I mean, you know, there's going to come times in your marriage where you, you you don't feel much love for the person you married. That happens. That's just normal. But what do you do? You own the commitment. And you say, no, this is, this is about more than just how I'm feeling. And also, love seeks the highest good of the one loved. What would be the highest good for someone? That he or she would come to know Christ. Right? That's the highest good that you could ever give anyone and be conformed to his image. Uh, that's, that's so important. So the, the goal of love, both in the family and the church, should be to encourage and to help the other person to know Christ more and grow in their relationship with him. And that's the model that Jesus laid down for us. He gave himself for us on a cross, the Bible says, in Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners. He looked at us, and you're a bunch of sinners, but you know what? I'm still going to die for you. I'm still going to go to the cross, and I'm going to, even though you're, you're, you're not even interested in it at this point, I'm still going to do it for you, even while you're still sinners. Christianity is one of the, the few religions that does not teach you have to get cleaned up first to come to God. I mean, our God is holy, don't get me wrong. But if you're not a Christian here today, don't think that you could go take, a, you could take hours in the shower and you could not clean yourself up good enough to come before a holy God. The only way that will ever happen is when you put your faith, your trust in the sacrifice of Christ and the payment of your sins through Christ. And then he gives you a shower like you've never had before. So our model of love is the Lord and Savior who gave himself. Thirdly here, love is an action that requires improvement. You never arrive at this. Um, Paul has repeatedly commended them for their love. But he still said, you know what? You need to do it more and more. Right? He's not rebuking them. He's, he's exhorting them. He's encouraging them. And all of us can always love our spouse more, our children more, our family members more, our fellow Christians more, our neighbors more. We never arrive. But guess what? It's not automatic. It doesn't just happen as we sleep away at night and we wake up a joyful, loving person. No, it requires deliberate thought. It requires deliberate effort. If you're not deliberately thinking about and working at loving others more, guess what? It's not going to happen. You're not going to improve in this area of loving one another. One practical way to work on this is take 1 Corinthians Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. We know this. We went through it. I would encourage you to take verses 4 to 8 and put them on a card. And read it over every morning. Until it becomes so natural that it governs all your interactions with people that day. Let's just work through it here real quick. Ask yourself hard questions about each of these qualities. First of all, it says what? Love is what? Patient. Well, right off the start, I'm, I'm in the hole already. Love is patient. Oh, man. I don't think my family or coworkers even would, would describe me as a patient person. But he also says love is kind. Am I kind and gracious to people? Especially when they fall short of expectations. He says love is not jealous. You find yourselves competing with others or trying to get their attention or relationship or possessions that they have somehow. Uh, Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. How is our focus? Is it self-focused? Are we always trying to impress others with our achievements or opinions or some knowledge that we may possess? 
He says, love does not act unbecomingly. It's rudeness, basically. Am I considerate of other people's feelings and their points of view? He says, love does not seek its own. Ouch. Am I selfish? Do I think of others ahead of my own needs? Love is not provoked, he says. What's this mean? It's, it's really mean, are you easily offended? Do you get angry when people don't do what you want them to do? And that leads to the next one. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Oh, wow. You got your little scorecard score out for everybody? I love that brother, but I remember that day when he did this to me, and I'll never forget. You know, that's how we approach this, and, and that's no place for a Christian to think. Do we remind others of their past sins or their failures? Do we hold grudges, or are we quick to forgive? Because we have been forgiven by Christ. It goes on there, it says, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Are you pleased? Are you glad when others fail or fall into sin because it makes you look good? Love bears all things. Do I bear with people their immaturity and their shortcomings? Or do we always feel like we have to constantly correct, constantly correct? It says love believes all things. Ask yourself the question, am I suspicious of others? Do I trust them unless there's a good reason not to do so? Love hopes all things. This is a big one because a lot of times we write people off. (laughs) I'm not going to pray for that person anymore. There's no way the Lord ever saved that guy. Or do you believe that God can change and work in someone's heart? It's never too late. And then he says, love never fails. Do I give up on others who have wronged me or hurt me? Or am I committed to help that person become all that God wants them to be? See, these are very practical ways that we can look at love. And it's very convicting. It's probably convicting for everyone in the room. I know it is me. And even if you do very well in some of these areas, I'm sure there's some areas where you need work. And this is what Paul wants to get across to us. You never can relax. You can never just stop growing in this area. And so he's concerned here that, you know what, not just in the home and in the church, but he also is concerned in the workplace. And this is where he changes a little bit here in verses um, 11 and 12. And it's not really immediately, when you, when you look at the, the transition there, it's kind of like, wow, okay, that's kind of a, a pretty big transition to make. He's talking about love and all this stuff. And then he says, and aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs and work with your hands as we instructed you. Where is that coming from? Well, this is the second point. We should be showing God's love by our behavior at work. Okay, not just in the church, not just one with another, but also at work. And this is what he says. First point here is showing God's love at work requires goal-oriented behavior, not mindless drifting with the culture. So you can stop and ask yourself, what is your, what is your goal when you go to work every day? What's your goal? You say, well, I've got to provide for my family's need. Well, that's okay. That's a worthy goal because Paul had to point out, he said, hey, if you don't provide for your own family, um, you've denied the faith and you're worse than it infidel. You're worth an unbeliever. So that's a very serious warning. So we have to be working. But if your only goal is to provide for your family physically, that's no different than what the world looks at work is. That's why almost everyone works. Because they have to. They're trying to provide for their families, their needs, their wants. But Paul says, aspire Or he says, make it your ambition. Some translations read it that way. It means to be zealous, to be striving eagerly, even to consider it an honor to do this in anticipation of the Lord's return. So we're to lead peaceful lives, 
free of conflict, free of hostility toward others. And that's really a witness that God has transformed our hearts. And the phrase there implies a goal and some effort toward the goal. The goal isn't to climb the ladder of success or put a big pile of money in your account or beat all your competitors. That's not the goal. The goal is to be a godly witness to those without Christ in your profession, in in your realm of influence, wherever you work. Um, It's so important that we understand that. One person wrote about the the mindset in America, and he says, as the so-called developed world enters the 21st century, too often we Westerners find that the secular worldview has reduced work to a career and life to an endless consuming of things. And as a result, we live without hope, without purpose, and both our work and our life itself carry uh, little, if any, meaning. And that's, that's a good thing. And so Paul says, no, make it your ambition. Okay, aspire to this. Your, your aim should not to become rich or successful. Rather, it should be to display the love of your Savior to those who wrongly think that making a lot of money or becoming successful at work will bring some form of happiness because we all know that's not true. Well, secondly, the means for showing God's love at work is to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business. And what does Paul mean here? Lead a quiet life. Does that mean you go around whispering? No. No. It it means to be silent, (laughs) actually the word. Not speaking out inappropriately. uh, Remaining at rest. Having kind of a tranquil personality. He used a similar phrase in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, where he says that we should pray for the kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Peter mentions it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. He talks about a similar quality when he talks about Wives who are living with unbelieving husbands, and they're to win them without a word. He says, with the imperishable quality of gentle and quiet spirit. That means, ladies, if you have a husband at home that doesn't know the Lord, it, does, it means that you don't take home tracts and set them where the, the uh, newspaper is, hoping that he'll read it. You know, no, you take it to the Lord, and you be a good testimony. And this is hard sometimes because sometimes unbelieving husbands don't understand a spiritual life. They don't understand the change that's happened. It's, sometimes it's not the person they married. Sometimes two unbelievers get married and one of them gets saved. And all of a sudden the other person is going, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? Now you want to go to church? Now you want to do this? Now you want to do that? And I've seen a lot of husbands and wives, by the way, just double down and say, well, I don't care what my spouse thinks. I'm going to do this. And that's a poor testimony. The Bible says that very clearly. You're not going to win them over with that kind of an attitude. Because it's not being submissive to God's word. Now that doesn't mean that you don't live out your faith and you don't pray for them and continue to try to minister to them in some way. But it takes a lot of wisdom and you've got to go to the Lord for that. And so he wants them to understand in both contexts here The goal is a godly witness, not necessarily through preaching, but through behavior. You have to do both, but here he's talking specifically about behavior. I've met a lot of people in different jobs that I've had in my my life, and, and sometimes, you know, they find out you're a Christian. It's not good news. Oh, we had one of you before. Total mess up. Couldn't do anything right. He's always reading his Bible, and he should have been working, or he's always trying to talk to everybody about preaching to everybody, and, you know, wasn't doing any work. Well, we're not called to, to do those things. We're called, if our employer is paying us, we're called to give them what they're paying us to do. If they're not paying you to read your Bible, then don't read your Bible at work. Be a good testimony. Work hard. Work harder than anybody else. 
So then when they can ask, what motivates you? Then you can tell them, right? And you can show them. And so we have to be careful in this area. Um, And he also says to mind your own affairs. It means you shouldn't be busybodies or gossips and constantly trying to get everybody else's business and fix everybody else rather than yourself is really the idea. It doesn't mean you shouldn't care for other people's problems. He's not saying that. But he's saying that, you know what, you need to focus on yourself first and foremost in this area. Make sure you got your act together. And both of these phrases imply that a Christian's witness at work should primarily be not through their mouth, but through their behavior. That's important for people to hear today. Well, thirdly, the motivation for showing God's love at work is to see the God-given dignity of work that we have done, uh, that is done for his glory. Um, You know, in the Greek culture of Paul's day, uh, they looked down on any kind of manual labor. That's why usually they would have slaves that did the labor, in their houses even. They would have servants. But the Bible constantly upholds the dignity of all work. You know, people say, well, I thought work was a result of the curse. No, Adam and Eve had to work before they ever even sinned. And they counted it a privilege to do whatever God told them to do. They had manual labor in the garden that had to be performed on a daily basis. Godly men in the Old Testament worked as farmers and shepherds. Paul himself made tents. And he told slaves that they could do their manual work as unto the Lord in Colossians chapter 3. Even our Savior was what? He was a carpenter, right? He did work. And so Paul says to work with your hands. He's not prohibiting someone who has a white-collar job or a professional job or something like that. But he is elevating manual labor as a a dignified endeavor, as something that's given to us by God. Remember, God didn't curse Adam's work after the fall, but rather he cursed the ground which he tilled. (laughs) So the work came a little harder, more difficult because of sin. But the work is not the thing that is wrong. Um, If you view work as a curse and you try to avoid work, um, you're not going to be doing the best in your life for the Lord. You will do only what's minimally required. And if you, some of you have to hire people today and you know what I'm talking about, the workforce today, I think, for the most part, looks at the minimal amount of work that they have to do. And we've gone through a time in, in, in our culture where, especially here in the Bay Area, in the tech industries where, you know, these young kids, they graduate from college and they go to work and they're making, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 a year and their employers paying for their health club and paying for their lunch and their dinner and their breakfast and anything they want to drink, it's all right there at work. It's just on a, you know, not so much anymore, but that's the way it was for years. And they thought, you know, when I used to drive Uber, I remember taking these, these people to the airport and stuff and found out, oh, they work for Facebook or they work for Apple or whatever. And yeah, but I'm thinking of quitting. I've been there two years. You know, it's like, why would you quit? I'm getting a little tired of it. You know, they're kind of requiring me to, I thought, wow, you know, you got like a dream job, dude. And, uh, you know, it's just sad. It's sad. There's not a very minimal work ethic today. And that's one thing is if you're a young person here today, I would say, boy, if, if you want to stand out, you work hard. And you keep working when everybody else quits. And you'll stand out and you, you'll, you'll be successful in life, no doubt. Um, Colossians 3.23 says, do your work heartily as unto the Lord rather than men. Right? Why? Because you're not always going to get the praise for the work you do. You're not always going to get the tap on the head. Sometimes it doesn't come. Well, fourthly here, the aim for showing God's love at work is to be a witness to outsiders and to provide for your own needs. Uh, to walk properly toward outsiders. It means they're to be witnesses to unbelievers by our behavior on the job. That should be in the utmost part of our mind when we go to work. How are they perceiving me as a believer? Am I being a good testimony? 
Um, in the area of being a verbal witness, uh, you know, if, if, you're, if your boss says, no, nah, I don't want you doing that here, then don't do it there. You know, pray that God would open up a different way. You know, I've known some people, they go to their work and they give out tracts, they do all this stuff, and it's offensive to their employer, and then their employer ends up firing them, and they don't understand why. And they think that somehow, oh, I got persecuted. No, you just acted like an idiot. You know, if you go to work, you're there to work. You're not there to preach. You're not there to, you know, do anything other than that. Now, if your employer's fine with that, then go for it. But you have to be willing to uh, do what your employer's asking you to do. If not, then go find another job. Um, but don't go, and I'm not saying never share the word with people or whatever in your employment. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is let your behavior be your testimony first. And then pray that God would open up doors for you to, to share. And if God, if they ask you, then hey, then you're entitled to answer. So you go ahead and give them the answer. But your employer did not hire you to evangelize your fellow employees on the job. Okay, so you just have to be careful with that. And then it says here, and be dependent on no one. It means basically that we should be responsible managers of our own household. That, you know, when we go to work, we're not begging people for, hey, you got a sandwich for me today? You know, because you, you mismanage your funds and you don't have bologna to, to make your own sandwich. Okay. Uh, Christians should not be a burden to others, but rather we should be there to help others provide for those with true needs. And, and that's very key. And so we want to be generous, but we also want to be wise about things. Um, you're not acting in love when you expect financial favors from other believers simply because they're your brothers or sisters in Christ to bail you out of a situation that you got into. Um, you know, you need to turn your heart to God and ask him to meet those needs. So Paul is basically saying you need to work diligently at loving one another and you have to show that God's love expressed out in your workplace through your behavior, not necessarily through uh, your words. Next week, we'll get into the coming of the Lord, and that's going to be exciting. But I think that it's important that we remind ourselves of these things because it's practical, right? We live in this world every day. We run across people every day that don't know Christ, and we should always be asking ourselves, how are we coming across to them? And so let's bow in a word of prayer, and then we'll close with a song and have our fellowship time across the way. Father, we thank you for your word today. And, and Father, we pray that this is practical. Lord, we all have jobs. We're all places of employment. We all go to work. To some degree or another, we all have neighbors, we all have family who may not know you. And, and Lord, they're looking at our lives. Even though we may not say a lot, they're still looking. And so, Lord, I pray that what they see would be pleasing, that it would be, uh, create a curiosity in their hearts that they want to ask us why we do what we do and why we act the way we act. And, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't uh, do things that would be dishonoring to you. We wouldn't act in ways that are dishonoring to you. And, Lord, we're not perfect. We all have fallen. We've all done things that are dishonoring to the Lord. But, Lord, our heart's desire should be to, to allow those things to be less frequent, that more and more we could be, live more in the image of Christ, and that when people see us, they would see the image of Christ and the love of Christ. And, Lord, even within the church, that's a great place to start, within the church, as body, the body of believers here at Grace Bible Church. How do we treat one another within the body of Christ? Are we truly loving each other? Are we self-sacrificially loving one another? Or are we only doing it when it's convenient and when it's profitable for us? And, Father, if there's someone here today who's yet to understand the love of God because maybe they haven't trusted in Christ yet, I pray, Lord, that you would move, you would work in their heart, that you would point them to the cross, that Christ would convict them of their sin. Lord, the Holy Spirit would do its convicting work in their hearts and lives, and, Lord, they would realize that there's, this, this hole is too big to climb out of. There's no way they could ever do it on their own. And, Lord, they have to cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. I want to put my faith, my trust in Christ and Christ alone to save me, to transform me, to make me into the person he desires me to be so that I can truly understand what it means to love another person in the way that God loves me. Father, I pray today that if that's on their heart, Lord, that you would draw them to that desire, that you would draw them to yourself. And Lord, that they would make that profession of faith in you. 
And Lord, if anyone here has done that today, I pray that they would seek someone out and share that with them so that we could follow up. And Father, we just pray today that you'd bless our time of fellowship across the way, bless the food to our bodies. And Lord, we just thank you for allowing us to be here today and to celebrate uh, yet another day and another week of your uh, gracious hand in our lives. And you provide for us and you love us. And we just thank you for that. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen.